Welcome back to Auntie Please, where we are everything we want to be, nothing you want us to be, and so much more. I'm Shia, and with me I have... Lama! Before we get started, I wanted to acknowledge the traditional custodians of land in which I'm recording from, the Bon Murung and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, past, present, and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded, this was and always will be Aboriginal land. We had such a beautiful recording with our latest guest, Navi Karan, where we discussed topics on identity, masculinity, connection to people, and much more. We even talked about identity and sort of being more than the labels that you put on and kind of how that really just ties in to a lot of our experiences as people. Yep, and masculinity and masculinity as a trait and how that can present itself in different people regardless of gender identity and we also question whether masculinity itself is the problem so listen to find out more. Navi also talks about having connections to other people and like the people that you feel safe around and the importance of being connected and feeling like you belong as well as also on talking about healing and the importance of doing so and especially with raising a whole generation, like the next generation that isn't inflicted with as, with as much trauma. Absolutely. We also had Navi answer some questions from our listeners, which she answered with so much love and honesty. We spoke about the duality of life in which, you know, we can be surrounded with suffering while also experiencing joy and acknowledging all of this whilst it is happening. Just a trigger warning for the episode that, you know, we do have conversations about queerphobia and suicide so please listen at your own caution if you are struggling with anything please reach out and you know seek the help that will lead you on to your path of healing we hope you enjoy this episode because shy and i truly enjoyed the conversation Hello everyone, today we are joined by Navi Karan. Hello, welcome. Hey, hey, how's it going? Welcome, welcome. <laughs> it's going very well. We're actually going to jump straight into the rapid fire questions so we get a little peek of who she is before getting them to introduce themselves. So it's very simple. Right. I'm just going to ask you a series of questions and you're just going to answer whatever your reflex is. Let's okay? do it. Are you ready? I'm not, but let's do it. I'm so excited. Let's. <laughs> I've just had a coffee, so... <laughs> wired. They're wired. Okay. Masala tea or brew coffee? Masala tea. Duh. <laughs> Pani puri or dahi puri? Dahi puri. Oh, yes. I love dahi puri. Dim sum or sushi? Ooh. Ooh, that is sushi. Alu prata or dosa? Oh, my God. Dosa. <laughs> Ava on toast or Vegemite on toast? Oh, my God. Cancelled both of them. <laughs> what? Not even ever. Okay, go on. Yeah, I, I am actually, I'm actually on that same train. I actually don't like either. I, I think what? the only way I like avo is in guac. If not, it's kind of... Yeah, if it's in chutney, then Oh my you know. god, I miss having avo so much. Because it's so expensive here. Okay, and we go on. Um, would you rather never get angry or never be envious? Never be angry or never be envious. Oh, I'd rather never be angry. That's interesting. I would rather never be envious. I think... I can't even remember. I feel like I'm always changing my answers. <laughs> um, what is the best advice you've ever received? That the only choice you have is to accept. If you could dance together with anyone, who would it be and why? Good Lord. Um, so many people. I think um, 
my friend Rahim from the UK, mm-hmm. um, was this beautiful Kathak artist um, mm-hmm. in London. Good Lord. Um, I think uh, Saroj Khan, if she was alive, yeah, and if she would have me. <laughs> so I'm, hmm. uh, good Lord. Um, I think of a good number of classical artists from around the world, but you know, the yeah. list is, I can't right. remember them as well for some reason. So <laughs> you can tell I think about this a lot. <laughs> okay, one. what's one great thing to come out of the COVID-19 pandemic for you? Wow, I think realizing the power of sitting with grief and everything that can come out of that. Very interesting. Favorite memory from 2021 so far? Wow, on record. <laughs> Favorite memory, um, oh my gosh, 2021. It's so hard. I think I've had such a great year so far. So yeah. it's going to be really hard. Can you come back to this? Okay, please. we'll come back to it. So, so happy <laughs> Final question. Would you rather know the uncomfortable truth of the world or believe in a comfortable lie? Would you, could you repeat that? Would you rather know the uncomfortable truth of the world or believe in an uncomfortable lie? Uncomfortable truth of the world, which I think I navigate quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I can Let's imagine. I can imagine. Okay, so who are you? Tell us about yourself and how you've evolved across the years and how you've kind of come to be Navi today. There's no easy way to answer that. I think one of the most beautiful things and my favorite memory of 2021 so far is realizing that complexity is beautiful. And I think I've spent 25 years of my life, which is how old I am, <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, building this complex being and realizing the security in it that I can have and incubate and create for myself. Yeah. I, um, you know, some labels that um, I use uh, so that other people can understand some parts of my identity is transgender, non-binary, um, woman, um, artist, writer, educator, producer, Dancer, choreographer, human, nurturer, um, gosh, chef, cook, uh, wannabe mother, wannabe auntie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so I think there's, there's a, I think I exist in several multiplicities and it's, it's very exciting to arrive at that. Yeah, yeah. I really like that because I used to always feel when I was younger that I had to be one type of girl one type of woman and kind of growing up realizing for myself that you can be multi-dimensional and have so many facets to yourself was very very powerful mm. in realizing that and kind of realizing that when people try to put you into a certain box or file you're like no actually I can be more than just that one thing that you want me to be so I really like that mm, it's very absolutely. Powerful. I think there's this popular notion that you know you want to avoid being high maintenance she mm. always got me. I think I'm the most high maintenance person I know. <laughs> but you know, I do my high maintenance. Yeah. I care for myself. You know, that's mm-hmm. I don't necessarily see it as anyone else's responsibility. And I think that's allowed me to care for myself and look at myself in all the ways in which I exist. And I think yeah. it's awesome. Very nice. Um, tell us about your like geographically about like where you currently live right now and like you know, why you're in Melbourne and, you know, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I'll start from sharing that I'm from Dombivli near Bombay, Maharashtra in India. Um, I've got family both around Maharashtra and Karnataka, Bangalore, parts of South India. I moved to 
this colony a little over five years ago. I predominantly live in Mianjin, um, also known as Brisbane, and um, I practice storytelling in various forms, like I said, as a dancer, as a writer, as I do some theatre. And so I was, I have, I'm, I'm in, I'm in um, Melbourne um, at the moment because I did, a, I performed as a part of the Sangam Festival, which is a South Asian arts festival. And yeah, it, 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 you know, it was, it was an amazing gig. Really grateful to have met some really cool folk. I had a bunch of South Asian artists, queer artists, South Asian queer artists who put me together. Someone did my Hindi. Um, Nisal, who goes by Spicy Chai Latte on Instagram, did my makeup. Um, really dear friend Lokesh Kashyap did my outfit. It was so cool. It felt like it felt like I was about to perform at Coachella. Just with, like <laughs> I had a little crew of like people who kind of realized some of the intersections I come from, who put mm. me together, and it, I felt quite seen. Yeah, that's so lovely. I'm so glad you got to experience that. Um. And so, how long ago again did you say you moved to Australia? I moved over five, a little five years ago. Five years ago, okay. Do you have any distinct memories from your earlier years being in Australia and like finding your footing? What was that experience like for you? I think it was. Um, I think it, in retrospect, it was absolutely challenging. But I think the beauty of being in survival mode is you don't necessarily see it as either a challenge or either, you know, a struggle necessarily. I think now that I'm quite aware of some of the systems that I was a part of and realizing some of the experience I've had, and now that I'm able to give a certain amount of language to those experiences, um, I'm able to see it for what it is in retrospect. But, you know, in, in those given times, it was quite... It was like, you know, I'm part of a country there. English is the, you know formal i guess the main language which but you know not that it was any different from india because a lot of like you know huge populations in india predominantly speak english or engage in english especially you know i moved here for uni and so you know i, mean, I was used to like engage in english for example um realizing how early everything shuts <laughs> same <laughs> that is a it's, common it's, struggle <laughs> i mean one your cafes are already shut at 2 p.m which blows my mind because for a country that's obsessed with coffee <laughs> don't serve it for too long. <laughs> don't get it. Like, like I would drink it at any point of the day because of just just how nice it is. Um, but you know, I think even space is just closing past five or six p.m. I mean, to be fair, I did live on the Gold Coast, so you're not necessarily the most busiest part of Australia. Mm. Um, but I think just realizing how quickly things get quieter and how people don't necessarily engage in community that doesn't look a certain way. I think um, there's. Um, you know, there's a huge culture of um, drinking and, mm. and I guess partying um, in this country that a lot of people engage in. And often I watch people only engaging in certain forms of community um, that, you know, then if it's during the week, I don't see a lot of like, you know, like people are all in their apartments, people are all in their units and doing what they are, um, working in the nine to five, etc. So I think that really got to me because it felt like a very... Um, I know, like almost a clinical way of living where we don't really talk to each other beyond a certain point. So I guess that was, it was a very distinct, like, you know, I would just leave the house at 6 p.m. and go like, well, where, where is everybody? Like, yeah. we'll have such, you know, this country has such beautiful outdoors, um, like, you know, things that you can do outdoors and landscapes and gardens and parks and everything. 
It's just like they're empty and it doesn't make sense. Yeah, some of my peak um, socializing that happened as I was growing up was like going to the park, going outdoors, and doing things outside with friends, or like going to like the shops and everything. Yeah, that is very true. I think it's also the difference when you live in a city. I think、mm. I grew up living in the suburbs a lot, and I had like my big garden, my big lawn area. My brother and I used to play badminton in the evening, and、mm. we used to run around with our dogs and stuff. And it was, it's so different when you move into an apartment and like city urban living because you don't really have those spaces of community like you did before. And even if you do, you're like, where am I supposed to go play badminton in the alleyways?、Yeah. Like, man, I miss badminton. Oh my god, <laughs>、yeah. I miss playing badminton. Just out, like you know, just out of the blue, like at six p.m. Let's go play badminton.、Yeah. Just then, casually, no net, no nothing. Nothing. Just like you, even if your bat's broken, and you know. <laughs>、um, I think also realizing that moving into a country that doesn't have a population that's high, highly dense, as you know, the one I come from. You know, I got told that the whole of this country is Delhi. You know, Are you serious? I'm pretty sure Delhi's population is as much as the whole of Australia, and Australia is twice. I mean, a little more than twice as big as India is, and、mm. so you know that kind of puts a lot of things in perspective. Like you know, why if you don't see a lot of people around, especially if you move from the Indian <laughs> subcontinent, that's probably why because you know there's actually not those many amount of people、um, out there. That's crazy. I need to Google this after. Hmm. Do you, two questions? I suppose、mm. is there is there one constant struggle you feel of being someone that's moved into this colony and you know immigrated here? And is there something that you always hold to yourself as this is one of the best parts of I suppose having、mm. made that move? I think again off record I shouldn't be talking about this in podcast, but I think just immigration really immigration has been a big. Struggle and almost erasure, like you know, erasing in who I am. But to answer your question for record, <laughs> <laughs> what can I say and not get deported?、Um, <laughs> this reminds me so much of my best friend when he moved here, and he, like, even the littlest of things, jaywalking. He'd be like, "No, your visa, your visa, don't jaywalk." Absolutely, like, babes. Babes, it's gonna be okay. And he's like, "No, you don't understand." I was like, "You know what? I felt this way when I first moved here too." So yeah, I, I get where he was coming Absolutely. from. Absolutely, <laughs> but also like you know, like the general fear of even being anywhere in public and like thinking that you know you could get in, like the cost of getting in trouble in this country, especially if you're a migrant or on a visa, is huge. Yeah, you know, and then mixed up with like you know, if you're a person of color, like at least I think. There's certain intersections that give me still privilege that you know, a lot, like a lot of like if you're black, for example, that's、mm-hmm. not necessarily、yeah. you know, afforded to you. So、um, it's fucked. But anyway, I'll answer this question for. <laughs> <laughs> so what is what is a constant struggle? Is that what you is what you could.、Um, a constant struggle would probably not necessarily having access to community that. I I feel like I can engage in a way that is safe and you know. Towards community, like you know, towards in a way that builds community. So, I think one of the biggest things I miss about I missed when I first moved here was having an access to like South Asians that I can hang out with, that I can play badminton with, eat with, cook with, and whatnot. And I think it's taken me almost five years to like find other South Asians who are queer affirming, who you know are. 
aware of some of the things. I'm not, you know, the thing is not saying that, you know, if you're a South Asian or if you're a person of color, you need to have everything down pat. You know, you, you need to have conversations of anti-racism. You need to have conversations of intersectionality and you, should, you need to realize, you know, whatever psychosocial trend is happening and be aware of it and be able to like, you know, speak with it with nuance. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is I think I really personally struggle finding people who just accept me for who I am. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, I think the isolation and I still live in a lot of isolation. I think people generally mistake me for someone who is quite well, in, well connected. And I think I am quite well connected, fortunately, with a lot of folk, especially in Manjin. But I think the social isolation that comes from being almost a statistic in or almost a number in a system that doesn't really acknowledge you for all the all the identities that you are and, and in a wholesome way, in a holistic way, in a human way, I think that puts people in huge amounts of isolation and I experience that quite a lot. Mm-hmm. What is the second part of your question? The second part is, is there anything that you find perhaps like beautiful or something that just makes you smile about having moved here? Having moved here? Oh. If there is anything, I'll add a little caveat there. <laughs> I think really acknowledging how multinational and multiracial this country is. I think we really don't acknowledge and appreciate how many different parts of the world people come here from, you Mm. know, for several reasons, you know. And, you know, when I find myself communing with people and people feel... Like they have the space to talk about where they're from or like, you know, bring food or dress in ways or like, you know, accessorize or put your makeup on that, you know, signifies their connection to their culture. You know, when people code switch in ways that makes them feel safe to talk and use slangs and use, you know, mannerisms, etc. that gives them an opportunity to be people of culture. That is beautiful. Just I think, you know, I think... You know, there's there been there've been times when I've been part of like events and I've and they've just been other people of color. And I'm not saying that, you know, white people don't have access to culture, don't have access to, you know, their own communities and can't be in ways that also, you know, welcomes our, our and I'm not saying white people are also not part of these spaces. But when I've been as part of certain events and really found people take space, I forget where I am. And sometimes when I leave the room and I go, Wow, like reality hits going that, you know, we're part of this white supremacist system that really is driven towards erasing culture and erasing people and where they're from Mm. and trying to assimilate them into a certain way of being. Um, But, you know, that still gives me joy to be a part of those communities and part of those events and spaces. Mm. Yeah, that's, I think that's something I can relate to in that when I moved here, I also felt the same way. I was like, I don't have the same community I had that I did when I was at home. I'm lucky I had my aunt here and her family here and that little small group felt really good. But I think I really realized how much I miss being around community that made me felt like I was home without even making me realize that when I actually started working in hospitality and every single person working in that like chain was South Asian in one from the other, either from India, there was even someone else that was Nepali there. And it's so hard for me to find a Nepali person because mm-hmm. I, for some reason, I'm just not around those communities as often as I think I am. And it was just so nice because 
people would be like, you know, speaking in Hindi. Not that I understand Hindi very well, but someone else was speaking to me in Nepali other than my family, which was so nice because I've always felt that when I moved here, I was like disconnected from, you know, my different mother tongues. And I felt really bad because I was like, I'm, I was really great and had such a good control of my language before I left and it was what connected me to my family and being at home and now moving here I have no one to speak this language to so it was really nice when I worked in that place and I had just all the and most of them were men I was actually like maybe one of like three women that worked there but it was so nice still to just have that sense of community and you know when it was when it was like holy back home for them or when it was like, you know, Ganesha Chaturthi or mm. when it was just like all these different festivals that you know that they celebrated that you also in some way also celebrated. It was so nice because everyone would just wish you these things. You don't get this. I don't get that when I, you know, go into my like current workplace because not by any of their fault. They just had didn't grow up with these celebrations. So yeah, that's very nice. Mm, absolutely. Mm. I fully assimilated myself with white people. <laughs> Because I lived in, like, which looking back now, I'm just, like, you know, I'm giving myself the side eye. But, like, in the sense that, because when I moved to Melbourne, I went, I lived in dorms, like, on, on campus um, residential college. And there weren't a lot of colored people in general. There was very much the whole quota system and stuff. And there were probably, like, only a handful of, like, colored people. And I I remember feeling, like, not that I didn't have a choice, but it was like, this is just the easier route if I just fully threw myself in their culture and the things that they do and the slangs and like in the way they speak and stuff. And it was just, it was, I think I saw it as a way to just find some kind of connection, but it ended up being me, not jeopardizing, but like me, I guess, forgoing my own culture and like who I am, you know? And it's not like people were really curious they were more curious about why I could speak English so well rather than like, oh, like, what's my country like? Like, what's my culture like and everything? But like, nobody really asked. Nobody really cared. But then I was the one who was like, oh, what's this? What's that? Like, why do y'all do this? Why do y'all do that? Um, but yeah, and I found myself like the longer I stayed in Australia, the more I was moving away from that and the more like I would have hesitations with like doing certain things like saying certain things or like being around certain groups of people um which is interesting to see and yeah and like the closest thing I had to like connecting with you know other South Asians was like our Deepavali parties at Anisia's place that was it well like it was like me Lama Anisia and like some other people and like her family and stuff and like we'd have all the food and like celebrations we dress up we wear saris and like all that and it was yeah, that was like the closest thing I had to being close to like family and like home. Mm. Mm. And I think what that also reminds me is when you talked about, you know, at the very beginning of that you assimilated as an initial part of your journey. I think white supremacy incentivizes assimilating and at the same time it punishes you for it, for one needing to be a certain person because really it's impossible to assimilate in ways that, you know, um, like for one person to do that in a way that is like, you know, it, you can never be white. Yeah. How, no matter how much you try, like for a single individual to like, act, like you can place yourself as close to whiteness as possible, but you still will remain the person that you are in a few ways, because even if you think you're white, 
white people won't think that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. so, you know, there's a certain place you can have, but at the same time, you'll find yourself being punished for it and celebrated for it. It's 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 strange, um, but it exists. It happens. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Anyways, let's move on to some different topics. So, in your article that you that was published on SBS, you said that you learned the tender side of masculinity through your father. Mm. Is there a difference between how you were thought to model masculinity versus how you define it for yourself now? I think having the realization that there's a difference between what we what what masculinity is and the toxicity and the traits associated with masculinity. I think, and this is so huge, right? Because I think what people don't, people, it's not that people don't realize, I think people struggle to come to the, or arrive at the realization is that there is, there's no single way of being, you know, regardless of your gender, regardless of the work you do, regardless of your place in your communities, you can distinguish yourself in ways that make sense for you. Right, I think one of the biggest um, drawbacks or flaws of the binary is that it really forced people of certain bodies to behave in certain ways, and and you know it it made norms out of that, and it punished people for stepping out of that norm, so that we people genuinely forced themselves to belong in those boxes, and as a part of that, anyone stepping out of it was you know punished or. For, like you know experience a range of different consequences and so to answer your question I think the masculinity that I was modeled to be as is based off you know the major traits of masculinity that we know to be but realizing you know to answer your second part like how do I define myself um, I think as someone who embodies multiple ways of being i embody the genders of my ancestors and i feel them specifically in my torso and therefore masculinity is absolutely a part of who i am because masculine and male ancestors are part of who i am you know and so i think it's hard to define because it's masculinity is one of the ways of my ways of being and at the same time, so are everything else. And so when I'm masculine, I'm masculine. And only I can define that for myself. What I know that I don't have to stick to are some of the traits. Like, you know, I can show emotions as much as I want. And I can cry as much as I want. And I can love who I want. And I don't have to stick to a certain dress code. You know, all of those things. So if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. Um, I have a follow-up question to that. Um, just on, like, toxic masculinity... Um, and I guess social issues that surround masculinity. Do you think, like in your personal opinion, that the problem is masculinity itself or people's perception and the need to categorize and box people off to masculine or not? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, my answer to this is what are we teaching our men? What are we teaching our boys? And as a follow-up, what are we teaching our women and young women and girls to 
to hand like you know like what are we telling these women and girls to like you know bear and like deal with and submit to mm. so when you look at something like you know for example domestic violence um research suggests or some of the research suggests that you know domestic violence is very particularly gendered you know mm. and not that i'm saying that you know only men will perpetrate violence against women you know that's not what i mean what i mean is that when we look at the drivers of violence mm. these little things that push a certain person to perpetrate violence against another person these drivers are gendered in that a certain kind of person is put in a place where they're looking for something and the only way they can achieve that is to either use power and control to achieve that you know and that particular aspects of violence are gendered and often the people who are more likely to access these drivers happen to be men and the people who experience the violence happen to be women and it works in many different ways but often it does come down to that and there's so much research there's so much conversation there's so much discourse that you know you can look at um but again you know it comes down to what people in the industry call primary prevention mm. uh it's a huge topic i'm not the best person i'm not the expert to talk about that but um i think I don't I I would I would be the last person to say you know oh masculinity is wrong and masculine people should yeah. be canceled I don't think that I think masculinity is beautiful masculinity is tender masculinity is nurturing and caring in different ways to femininity you know I think there's powerful spiritual forces that govern the spirits that have certain ways of being and we can class them as masculine class them as feminine class them as different kinds of genders or ways of being etc etc but when it comes down to if you ever going to ask me that is 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 masculinity the reason we have certain ex- experiences then masculinity is going to be no it's really about what we teach them because even if you look at suicide for example experiences of suicide within different genders are very specifically gendered as well you know mm. um and i think again it's it's really the conversations we need to be having with people especially young people and men so that we can we can start changing which is a, you know it's so much easier said than done and there's so much work that's being done but i think the sooner we realize that it starts with conversations and education and prevention maybe we'll get somewhere yeah So basically to sum up masculinity is not the problem it's what we're teaching our kids it's what it's the i guess also like the gender roles and the norms that we are perpetuating and bringing on to like the next generation and and, in, and intersect that with race intersect that with mm. you know age and what not like you i mean you know I've had this conversations yesterday about lungis you know South Asian men wearing lungis South Asian men been wearing lungis that before white people came and colonized us and now that we are colonized lungis are seen as skirts that only women wear and now men are being shamed for it yeah you know and like think about what that teaches these men about masculinity you know when suddenly a norm a cultural norm is being shifted and looked at from a certain lens which in this case is white supremacy 
you know, yeah. and the amount of shame that brings in, the amount of, you know, trouble that brings in within these identities, and then the follow-on effect from that. Yeah. It's in, I swear it's in, it's in the little things that become big things. And my, my younger brother, once we were out shopping with our parents, it was like a couple years ago, and he said, he was like, I really want that shirt. And it was this really cute as floral shirt. And my dad was like, no, don't get that. That looks like very girly. And he's like, you're going to look like a pretty boy. And I was like, what do you mean he's going to look like a pretty but boy? But we love pretty boys. And I was going to say, yeah. I was like. Pretty boys are pretty. My brother, <laughs> you look like a pretty boy. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> and, and and that was, I think for me, it was it was a very like polarizing moment because I saw how my brother didn't, you know, box himself into a certain way that he had to look um, as a young man, whereas he was kind of pushing back against what my father felt like um, a young man should kind of emulate and look like. And that was very, actually very, like, very, what's the right word? I can't think of anything else but powerful for me to realize, for my little brother, to realize that he actually saw masculinity as so much more than what... We were kind of thought to model as kids. It, he, he's, he's my brother's. I will go on three thousand years about this, but he's the most tender, most loving, most nurturing man that I know now. But it, but it, but it's taken a lot to get there. It's taken a lot of unlearning throughout his young adult years to realize that he's capable of so much more than just, you know, angst and all the things that he must feel in you know fighting against what he's meant to be or told yeah. to be and so yeah i found that really really cool <laughs> that was also so nice to hear you talk about Aww. bless yeah i love him i really do love oh, him bless. <laughs> <laughs> oh, biters. oh he's so cute one day he told me he was listening to my podcast as like his bedtime routine and he was like it was so nice to listen to your voice i felt like i felt like you were there with me and just makes me miss you more i was like can you stop making me cry at 3 p.m in the afternoon oh my gosh that How is so you? cute yeah it was so cute i was like <laughs> oh uh, okay um continuing from sort of work that you've published mm. um i went on like a constant binge listen of the performance that you published on spotify mm. and um the one that i really the one the most recent the closet um kind of can you kind of take us through the story behind it for yourself because mm. i understand that poetry can be interpreted based on you know who's listening yeah. and i think that's the beauty of performance but what was that story for you and how did that you know come to fruition for yourself absolutely so i think the closet is in essence the first piece of poem in a long um series of poem called brown church that i'm slowly putting together and yeah. working on as i go and and, and in one way, the, the brown church as a work kind of journeys someone's experiences from being closeted to, you know, what happens then. Um, Mansion of Grace, which is the last poem, is mm -hmm. also a poem that's out there on Spotify. And that kind of like, you know, I, I, I put both of those pieces out there so that people know where it begins and where it ends, um, which is quite interesting. Um, one of the things that I learned as someone who was closeted and I think in retrospect I realized the closet as a 
thing doesn't exist because we can only be as out or as in as the world allows us to be, you know, and often we don't control it. Like when you think of the number of people that are very visibly queer or very visibly different, you know, not necessarily with your gender or your sexuality or your body. I think the world tends to be quite harsh on these people, regardless of who they are and what bodies and what lives they live. But I realized that, you know, back then, so then, and this is also how I came up and I wrote the work, is realizing that when you are different or when you don't necessarily fit a certain box, all that you're allowed to do is watch and observe and learn from it. Because eventually you may find a space for you to stay in or live in or kind of, you know, find your place within all of that. Or, you know, you let those experiences or those major identities eat you up and then that's your reality. And that's what often happens to a lot of people who are who don't fit the mold. Like, you know, even if you think of people who don't look like a, like the Eurocentric standard of beauty and, and, you know, the kind of harsh realities people put themselves through in order to fit somewhere on that spectrum. Um, and so with the closet, I think it, it's an amalgamation of experiences and um, observations that I've had over three years that I put together. The poem initially was much like double the length of a lot of, lot more, you know, I guess, experiences that I put down. And I think it was, it's just back to back narrations of every single thing that I was observing and the way people were treating me, um, and the kind of things people said to me and how I engaged with it. Um, and often how invisible that experience was, or rather how invisible I felt throughout the process um, in the last few, I guess, years. And so, um, but also I think, you know, within the closet, I think I also talk about almost this connection that I had with people that I'd never met, but with whom I had shared or I'm sharing certain experiences. So I talk about um, police brutality in a different part of the world. I'm talking about terrorism against queer people in a different part of the world. I'm talking about how, I think that writing the closet and, and experiencing the closet in its all forms, I realized this, this kind of connection we have with each other that doesn't necessarily have to be about your gender or your sexuality or your body, but a shared humanity. And I think that's what the closet is as a, as a, as a starting point uh, in this series of work that I'm writing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so, that's really, thank you for sharing that. That is really, really amazing. Yeah. I was going to ask about your upcoming work <laughs> and like, well, you give us a little sneak peek. Yeah. What that is. <laughs> Absolutely. This is so funny because I feel like I'm a celebrity, but I'm not. I'm, what is your upcoming work? I'm doing this film. No, I'm not. <laughs> But you're loved by many people, so in a way, like a celebrity. Yeah, no, absolutely. So at, at the moment, I am focusing on writing and choreographing a lot more. I am quite fortunate that I'm learning Kathak, which is... I um, Kathak, I love it. I grew up, I grew up dancing. <laughs> yeah. I did Bhadanatyam, and then I and I did Kathak like towards the days before I left <sighs> Malaysia. Yeah, Amazing. Beautiful. Can you explain it, what it is for listeners who may not know? Yeah, absolutely. So... India has eight non-classical dance forms and one of them is Kathak and Kathak predominantly ranges from northern parts of India and you know often 
quite, I guess, commercialized in Bollywood. And that's that was my initial, I guess, exposure to it. And I, I, I find myself quite lucky to be able to access it in Mianjin, Brisbane, because I've got, I have a teacher who is learning it from her guru um, in Pune. And so that's the dance style I'm focusing on learning. Um, and I guess, you know, but it's, it's also a lifelong practice. I'll be learning Kathak for the rest of my life now, which is so exciting. Um, I'm focusing on writing and finishing Brown Church. Um, it's also interesting because I, I do want to be writing and choreographing as much, but I'm also going back into uni um, very soon. So as a way to continue staying in the country. Yep. Enjoying uh, the train. I'm yeah. on that same train too. Yeah. Oh <laughs> oh, what are you going to study? I'm studying an MBA, which is a Master of Business Administration. Second so Masters, I will be, I will literally be that annoying dickhead at the table who is going to talk about the two masters she's got. <laughs> 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 like, oh, oh you, th- you, you think I stole your job? Squeeze me. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've done, I've got a double masters. Thank you. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> You're also going to be that brown, that brown person that the parents are like, um. Yeah, so what's your plan? Oh, they're doing their second masters. What's your um, child doing? Can you be? Can you okay. be? Can you be more like Navi, please? Can you like? Um... <laughs> Wait, what did you study before? I did my Mafas masters in criminology. What? It's so. I love that. Okay, nice. Quite nice. Yeah. So, um, I I do have a theater work that is coming up that I'm not allowed to talk about yet until they announce it in a few weeks. Which, but you know, if you follow me on your. Inst- on Instagram, which honestly you should be. Don't know why you're not. Um, it's it's criminal. No. Um, <laughs> you will find the details of that work coming up. But I think I'm really focusing on grounding myself with community, listening more, um, because there's people out there who are talking and sharing, and you know, quite 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 laboriously and I want to be listening to them as much as I can and then writing and writing and writing. I'm quite obsessed at the moment with what I'm calling the humanity of everything, where I'm just starting to realize little things that make us so deeply human and and ways in which we lose ourselves in our humanity as a way to show everything that we are. And just, I've had the opportunity, especially in this trip to mom, just sit back and watch people be themselves. And it's so beautiful and it's so engaging. and, And so it gives me so much life to like see like observe people be so full of themselves like in, in the most kindest yeah. kindest way like you know yeah, like yeah. like you know if you like that person is so them that i can watch them yeah. all the, like it's, it's like it's almost like they're in a tv show or a movie and you know <laughs> and the camera and i could just watch them and it's just like oh, it's the fast. Truman show it's, the Truman show? like you could just be making chai and you know just oh, the yeah. little beauty of like how you're mixing something mm-hmm. and because you know you you put yeah. more or less sugar depending on who you are and everything about what you do tells you tells you a little more about them and i'm so fascinated and so I'm, i want to really spend more time i also want to read more i don't know i I think I'm, I feel I feel quite grateful to be alive, and yeah. Yeah. therefore I want to live as much as I can. Mm. I feel like I'm in that in that in that same similar wavelength, especially mm. after coming out of last year. And I had one of the best New Years of my whole entire life with a group of friends that was just it just felt really nourishing. Like that night, I only got home at like six a.m., but I was like, I could be awake for three thousand mm. years if I could. And and it's the same, like, I think I'm really realizing the beauty of being alive and mm. being human and 
just as you said, like so much of that resonated with me, like just seeing my friends be themselves and, you know, whether we're in spaces together, just feeling like they clearly feel safe and they clearly feel welcomed and able to just be without having to, you know, put on a show, without having to, you know, try to do something else to make them be perceived as something. Like, they're just mm. them. And, like, that in itself is just just so, so beautiful. And it's like, like chef's kiss, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think even as artists and storytellers and, you know, people of, people of color, people of culture who... Like, you know, we are often having these big conversations and I, 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 I know often I realize that they're quite exhausting and we still do it anyway because we believe in the hope that these conversations have. And I think really what I, I want to be doing is surviving because I think we don't acknowledge that we, we live in an extremely challenging world. And for us to be doing what the work that we are is is hard, you know. It, it often comes at the risk of our own burnout, and so one of my ways of answering your question is, you know, what am I working on? I think more than anything, I'm alive and I want to keep continue keeping myself alive because I think I'm so constantly put up against systems of erasure that it can just be impossible. And so within that, you know, capacity to keep myself alive, if I can, you know, tell more stories, great, but otherwise I'm happy just being. Just listening to both of, both of you guys, like, talk about, like, the people that you guys surround yourself with and like who you're connected to and stuff like it's all about like human connection right and it seems like if I could sum up everything you guys were saying it was like that human connection is what what's making you feel alive it's what's making you feel connected and like loved and cherished and and safe and I'm starting to realize that I feel like I haven't had as much of that Lately in my life, like being back in Malaysia and also with like all my friends who would normally be here, like overseas and stuff. And I'm just like, maybe that's why I'm so sad. <laughs> but yeah, that's lovely to hear. I'm so glad you guys have that. A little bit jelly, but it's fine. Girl, just come back here. Bit. Come back here. Fam, I do. I want to. <laughs> I really want to, but also... Um, no, nah, I get yeah, it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm exploring options, you know, COVID and stuff and like masters. Like, I don't want to pay full fees if I have to like stay here. Yeah. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, let's discuss the layers of marginalization and discrimination that a trans woman of color who is also an immigrant would experience. Tell us about your experience and how, if you relate to that, and what are your layers and your struggles that you've had to or are still are still dealing with. Um, yeah, tell us about that. Um, I think in part I am quite mindful about questions like these because mm-hmm. there is such a beautiful and immense amount of joy in being who I am. I think when we think of you know being marginalized or being parts of intersections that, you know, you don't necessarily end up having a good time all the time. It's not always a party. You know, it's like sometimes you wake up and you go, hmm, this is going to be a bit of a struggle today, you know. Uh, There absolutely are those moments, you know, and those moments are quite defining and quite, you know, significant parts of your life, you know, the harm and the trauma and whatnot. But I think a part of what I wanted to create as 
as as as a as everything that I do either if it's through I'm burping quite a lot. <laughs> just strange. I just want to burp on this podcast. <laughs> What is it like being trans burping? That's it. No. <laughs> um is if 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 there's anything that I can do through this life is to support i guess anyone who cares to realize that there's so much joy in being everything that I can and everything that you can be as well you know i think um transness and being colored and being a migrant and being a travel and being a storyteller it definitely has come in you know, a i think i i sit on some various levels of systemic um forms of erasure a lot of people do a lot of people do absolutely and i think i think it's also time that we shifted the conversation from the trauma that people experience and not that this there's, there's we don't have to talk about the trauma i think it's extremely important to address the trauma and i think that, i think if anything we need to do more of that we need to keep talking about our trauma so that eventually we can we feel safe enough to turn those conversations into moments of healing mm. you know collectively as communities but i think there's such great beautiful things that come out of you know being trans has put me in question to everything that i can be with respect to my body and my sexuality and the ways in which i love and the ways in which i can curate love being a person of color has put me in close and intimate contact with other people of color especially other black and brown women who have given me so much and continue to give me so much being a migrant being a traveler and being here on these lands uh for now has you know taught me a lot about life taught me a lot about caring for land taught me a lot about living life outside of my head you know um and so i think um i want to i want to be able to focus on that because i think i think what one thing that we don't necessarily talk a lot about is black and brown joy in the ways in which we have such a powerful way in, to connect with each other and find humor mm. and find community and if even if it's that, even if it's through food or if it's language or it's play like you know badminton for example it's just <laughs> it's almost you know I like I I distinctly remember that you know when we lived in like particular house like apartment buildings there's almost an unsaid rule that you know if it's if it's 6 p.m. and if you're at home you will meet everybody outside in the lawn with your badminton rackets and you will play badminton it was it was never you know we never had whatsapp groups where you know we schedule things we never had calendars <laughs> it was it was just up. you know um a, a word that is you know in hindi and urdu is mehfil and it's a way of community like you know gathering together for a certain occasion like you know we 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 bloody like you know gathered for no reason and then we did things you know we always had things to do it was never like you know oh guess what will we do now let's just you know play cards and guess you might you know it's never that it was just we naturally fell into these ways of you know engaging with each other regardless of who we are who we were and how old we were and you know obviously there were some experiences and some rituals some practices that were gendered like you know men did certain things with other men women did certain things with other women and the children did things etc etc and you know i think what i want is to realize that we have so much hope and so much light regardless of the intersections that we're part of 
But at the same time, I don't want to shift necessarily entirely shift the conversation in a way that we we ignore our struggles and ignore our challenges, even because we are still being discriminated, we're still being erased. There's heaps and heaps of our siblings, and especially those who are black, both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, and you know people of um, countries from Africa and other parts of other black and black populations and diaspora that continue to be, you know, experiencing some very significant levels of erasure. I don't think we need to take away from that conversation. Mm-hmm. But that cannot be the only conversations we have. That cannot be the only, um, what, am I, what am I trying to say, the only experience that people think we have because yeah. we have so much culture to look forward to and engage. Yeah, and this is something I feel like we've kind of touched on like in our last episode with Dev as well about, on like identity. Um, but granted, in that context, it was like on chronic illness and like mental health issues. But you are more than that. You are more than your struggles. You are more than your problems. You're more than your issues. You are an individual who enjoys and like loves so many things about lives, you know, all your other side passions, your work, like whatever it is. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, 100%. I feel like that's the duality of life, isn't it? Where you have to acknowledge you know, your trauma, your personal struggle with whatever it is, but also remember and celebrate the times in which you feel joy. Mm. Because I think that's the paradox of being alive, is that it's both suffering and celebration at the same time. I think it's also exploration. I think just because, you know, you're hearing some queer on this podcast tell you that, you know, oh, this is how you should live your life. (laughs) You know what? Fuck that. Can I swear on this podcast? Oh, we okay. do it all the okay, time. Fair. I guess I'm swear. <laughs> um, there's, there's this really popular, I guess, phrase that's, you know, come up quite a lot because of social media. I think it's called moral absolutism, where yeah. people just, you know, tell you how to live. You know, oh, you should do this as a person of color. You need to be looking at this. You need to be doing this, this, this. No, just, bro, like, life is hard enough already, you know. if if Even if you, like, manage to... Just let yourself really think about everything that makes you happy. Really things that, you know, give you pleasure and whether it, you know, it can be whatever. Food, dating, parenting, culture, family, community, whatever, mm. work. Do what sparks joy. Mm. You know? Marie Kondo. Insert Marie Kondo. Mm-hmm. Insert Marie Kondo, but except like, you know, don't have to clear things out if you don't no, want to. Yes, like, just, exactly. just know that nothing that... that Nothing that anyone says on the internet is more important than what it is that you want to create for yourself. Mm-hmm. Because you are important and your life matters and your joy matters. To prioritizing your enjoyment 2021. <laughs> it's a like, fucking revolution for us to be doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. me too, Shia, when yeah. she tries to do bad decisions. <laughs> I'm like, excuse me, prioritize your pleasure, please, ma'am. Hey, sometimes bad decisions have pleasure. Yeah, that's why I say you can make good and bad choices. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to read something really quick because, like, it's something I just posted on our Insta story earlier on. Um, it's by this lady called Seema Anand. So she, Lama and I, we fucking love her. She's um, I feel like maybe Lama could explain who she is, but I'll, I'm just gonna read um the thing that she posted, and it's just like this quote that says. To be happy, you must know that you are happy. Happiness is a state of mind. It has to be acknowledged for it to bear fruit. So, like, like we were saying, like, also acknowledging, like, the happiness and, like, the joy that you guys, that we are experiencing. Um, yeah. What is something that you... I, I, I always, like, 
I love the two questions. But what is something you're tired of explaining to people? And what is something you love talking about? It does not have to relate to anything we've been talking about today. But yeah, what do you... Are tired of explaining? And what do you love explaining to people? I'm tired of talking about race. Mm. I'm done. I think I have realized the power in me sitting down and writing stories and sharing stories. Mm-hmm. I am trying to disengage with addressing topics of race as well. I think just because I'm a person of color and just because I, my work tends to involve topics and issues of race and trauma, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that's all I want to talk about all the time with people, yeah. you know. Um, I acknowledge the power of talking about race with other people of color because we often do it for the sake of debriefing because that's the only opportunities we get in terms of like, you know, oh, this white person did this or this happened to my work or I lost my this, this, this yeah. or, you know, someone I know has, this is what has happened to them or, or, or your own reality might be really hectic and so that may, that that's probably the only opportunity you get to talk about it which I happily, you know, acknowledge and, you know, um, but I also know that I'm also not the best person. You know, there's people out there who who do this for a living, people whose places in communities happen to be, you know, places of care and whatnot. And just because I am able to have those conversations doesn't mean I'm the best person. And therefore, you know, I also do, I also see the risk in that. And so, yeah, I'm trying to talk about race. And I think there's other things I want to talk about, the other things that I want to invest my time in. What is something I really talk, enjoy talking about? Wow, that's awesome. I, I really have been enjoying talking about healing. Mm. I think, and obviously there's, it's got context to race and huge context to race to acknowledge that. But I think it's been really amazing because I've, the amount of time I've spent with other people of color in the last few months and who inevitably talked to me about the kind of stuff they've been doing to have better conversations, have better relationships, honor their bodies and respect their bodies and respect their needs in a way to, you know, do things differently so that they can grow. And I'm so fucking proud of these people i'm so fucking proud of anyone who even if you invest a few minutes in your whole life to realize oh i can i can live a better life if i just took care of myself in any single way you know i'm so proud of you because there's a good chance that you know you either never had the opportunity to do this or that your parents or their parents never had the opportunity to do this and so you are creating opportunity for intergenerational healing and even if you even if it's just a desire that you have you're giving yourself permission to build that room for healing and if not you your children or your community that is coming after you is going to do that for you you know so i've been engaging in a lot of those conversations and it is so enriching it's so nice mm, i have to i have to agree with yeah talking about healing and seeing kind of happen in real life as well like when you're talking and processing that you know together whoever it is my parents you know have recently I think personally healed from something that they've needed to heal for for so long and just the way that it has improved our relationship as parent to child is ridiculous Mm -hmm. like they like we're just so much more open I can talk to my mom about a partner that's cheated on me before and you know, a partner that I wouldn't have told her I had because it would have meant talking about that and talking about how I feel about that. And, but now I can. And it was, it was so, I think what flipped my switch and made me realize that I have a different relationship with my parents now is that when I found out that news, the first person I was like, I want to tell my parents about this. They need to know Mm. that I'm going through this right now because they're going to see right through me during the week when they call me and I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. 
anything. But no, I'm going through all of this, all these emotions on the inside, and all I want to do is unpack it with、mm. them because I think it's also very humanizing for them to realize that their child is not just like <laughs> this being to you know push out good grades and you know emulate success, but also this person that's going through a lot. And things that they can possibly relate、mm. to that they've gone through in their youth or go through currently, and yeah, it's 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 nice. Absolutely, it's nice to see it and、happen. people might not think that you know outside of outside of our communities, people might not think that's a huge thing. But not realizing how even you know if you, even if you're not you know even if you're straight and you're cis, and if that's how we identify, unable body people of color often live such incredibly closeted lives, where we even struggle to. Talk about some of our basic experiences with our loved ones, and these are、mm. people that you've spent your whole life with, you know. And I think changing that, and I think there's the power in healing is that you know, often when we have these conversations and we allow ourselves to heal, we give permission to our for our parents to heal, you know, and their parents to heal, and even if it's not in obvious ways. Like you know, the number of conversations where I've had with people where someone said to me, "Oh, the." The the pain that I was experiencing, like the physical pain, you know, if it's through anxiety or if it's through, you know, some kind of a chronic illness that I'm experiencing, I realized that's the same pain that my mother was feeling or my father was feeling, and to be able to sit down and acknowledge that meant that I could actually release some of that pain. And you know, just listening to that is like, you all realize the spiritual power in this. <laughs> yeah. It is hectic and it's beautiful and it's so, it's it's hugely hope inducing.、Mm. And we need that. Yeah. Suppose this ties in well to the next question. But what can we do as as ourselves to kind of make spaces for loved ones in our life, people that we care about, people that we、mm. allow to enter into our space, safe and more inclusive, if that's what we want for them. And like, what kind of changes that reflect in ourselves to lead to kind of more of a safe world for everyone that we allow into our world. I think the conversation starts with you. What can you do to keep yourself safe from some of the biases that you have about the world? What can you do to make sure that you're creating a safe space for yourself to explore things without judgment and with a sense of settledness and peace? And I think the more you allow that, so that those kind of allow yourself to have those kind of conversations, the more comfortable. And safe, you'll feel to have those conversations with other people. However, I don't think that you can make these or manifest these spaces or opportunities by yourself. I think because you know trauma was caused us because our trauma is relational. That in that we just didn't wake up and were traumatized. You know, trauma、mm. was inflicted on us either by systems or predominantly others things that forces that are beyond us. And therefore, there's a relational aspect to it. Our healing is also relational, and I think every time I get asked what can I do, my question is heal. But heal the community. Find other people that you feel safe with, that you can challenge yourself with, and heal with them. Because there's not there's not not a bigger way to grow as communities, but eventually we can create that ripple effect than when we can sit together with each other and heal. Because then. You know this whole this whole saying that you know hurt people hurt well heal people heal, you know. So if we can create those spaces, we're on to the right track. Mm. Mm. That's a golden nugget. I'm gonna just frame that heal with community、yeah. and send it to all my group chats. Be like, guys, yeah, yeah please do this. Thanks very much. <laughs>
No, but honestly, like, thinking back to, like, some of my best moments where I've had, like, the best mental health, it's when I was the most connected to my friends, when I had my friends close by, like, I was talking to them every day, I was seeing them, like, every other day, and um, just that connection. Because, like, I do see my friends as family, and it's hard when it may not always feel like it's the other way around, like, with family, like, being able to go to family and, like, see them as, like, friends. Um, but, yeah, love that. Um, what are some of your best experiences or moments in life, especially ones that kind of, like, restore your faith in humanity or, like, um, that just, like, one of those, like, real, like, feel-good moments? Um, it doesn't necessarily have to do with anything we've we've spoken about um in this episode or yeah tell us tell us about that children children are the biggest reason i do what i do oh my god i can't imagine (laughs) go on please elaborate (laughs) is like kids (laughs) elaborate do i think all of my work boils down to supporting the creation of a world where our children can exist without trauma. Mm, yeah. It doesn't have to be our own children, yeah. but children. Because we are at such an important turn in, I guess, you know, in, in life with everything that's happening globally. I think yeah. we're all kind of having these conversations in different ways. You know, yeah. like even if you think of healing, we're, we're all trying to heal. We're all trying to fight something. Um, and I think I... The best moments in my life is when I watch children laugh or I watch children play or when I watch children or even especially when I see parents give children the opportunity to play and explore because I know that many of us haven't had that opportunity and still don't, you know? Yeah, that's what I want. I want I want kids to... I'm, I'm excited to see the coming generation literally eat the rich. Oh, like literally. oh please. <laughs> Let me live to see apart. it. <laughs> I'm excited and so you know partly you know partly they give me hope but partly I'm just like you know we will do we'll do all we can and then it's up to y'all <laughs> good luck nah I have faith I have faith um do you want to have kids yes I will yeah oh. I'm I'm kind of waiting to you know be a little less depressed <laughs> you know have some money you know Maybe have a nice visa that will let me stay somewhere I like. <laughs> and then we'll think of children. <laughs> but also, I see also see myself being this major auntie. Yeah. I'm already training some of the children in my life to call me Auntie Karan. Um, yeah. So that, you know, right. so that they can, yeah, I, I get, and you know, cook for them, judge them, you yeah. know, judge them some more and then feed them. <laughs> you can be my auntie if you want. I'm happy to have a critical eye on me <laughs> let's do it <laughs> uh i used to i used to you know feel very disconnected from aunties and especially when you grow up in communities maybe not so much my immediate family but when i see my parents or other aunties being judged and really being like just looked at very negatively by other aunties like oh i was like i don't want to be an auntie like that that's just not, like, that's not the auntie I identify with, okay? Mm. I identify with being the auntie with cool tattoos, that yeah. if my little, like, you know, like, nephews, nieces, whoever want to come to me with, like, questions that they don't feel comfortable asking everywhere, I'm like, that's that's how I know I've made it as an auntie. And be like, mm. please, come ask me all the questions because I want you to feel like 
there's a space here for you yeah. to feel comfortable asking these questions. And I know I'm on the route there when I have friends that ask me stuff about sex toys when I don't really even openly talk about sex toys, but they just know that I will, I'm there to have that conversation mm. with them and find what works for them because I'm not afraid of them, you know, coming to me with their own, like, needs, their own, like, kings, whatever that is. I'm not here to shame you. So I find shame just such a useless emotion. That's, mm. like, my motto for 2021. I'm like, no, stop feeling ashamed mm. of things that give you joy mm. and make you feel good mm. yeah yeah be the auntie you want to see in the world <laughs> literally <laughs> literally that's my autobiography <laughs> right there okay so we're gonna do the a couple of instagram questions that we got from people that have questions for you mm. so first question quite heavy but um also very personal to them i feel so do queer people of color who are also immigrants, have a place in Australian society. Um, and, like, did you face any challenges? How did you overcome them? But I think the most important part of this question is that what advice do you have for those that are struggling to belong? Wow. Do queer people of colour who are South Asian belong in Australia? Wow. I feel... I, I want to acknowledge and honour that the fact that you've had to question... If you belonged here, I think you absolutely belonged here. I absolutely, absolutely belong here. And I think it makes me, I wonder, oh, it, it makes me sad that you've had to question that's that. And I'm sure I can also like, you know, acknowledge and empathize that you've had experiences that have made you question that you absolutely do belong. Um, you know, what was the second part? Sorry, that was such a heavy question. I know, yeah. it was so heavy. It's just like, but do what you... advice do you have for someone that is struggling to feel like they belong? <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is, this is really got me. Okay, what advice would I have for you? I I would again for find your community. I think I think it's really challenging, especially if you belong to a remote or a regional area. There's a good chance that you're not meeting other people, especially if for you, communities are the South Asians. Um, I would try and get in touch with people over the internet, see what you need to do for you to thrive in all your glorious ways of being. And again, like I said, really think about what it is that you need to be liberated and try and build a life that can work for you, which I know it's a very ableist and a very privileged statement to make but i think you know this realizing that this life is really hard and challenging and sometimes the only way to survive is to brutally put yourself out there and create the space for you i like that second question is that are they single <laughs> with the eye yeah. someone's thirsty <laughs> what, a, what a question i I'm, I'm i'm deeply in relationships with people Mm. and a lot of them are friends are you, if your question is am I monogamous then no I'm not mm. you know if you want to ask me out ask me out if you know <laughs> it's and that's that's plain and simple and that's you know regardless if you want to be my friend if you want to be my sibling if you want to be my parent I don't know like regardless of what relationship it is that you want to establish with me come and ask me and let's talk about it I think deep down I'm a person of love and so I I more than anything I love people and what we do within those relationships are, you know, absolutely defined by the parameters of the relationship as negotiated by the people within that relationship. And so 
to answer your question, yes, I'm single, but also that's not a framework I use. <laughs> Slide into those DMs. Slide! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that response. Oh my gosh. Final one. Is there a way of coming out to South Asian parents that is more catered to our people than white people? Yo, this is this is another hard one because coming out is such a construct created by colonization. We have been queer since we have existed. Queerness has been a part of our realities and queerness as a verb. I don't mean as a gender, I don't necessarily mean as sexuality. I mean, you know, we have loved and cared for various people in our various ways since, you know, we've existed. So, if you're asking me how to come out in a way that is that fits the call, like, you know, this, in, in, in terms of coming out, it is really hard because what our parents may know as gender and sexuality may not be the same framework. You know, a lot of parents, for example, don't even actually understand what being gay or being bi or being lesbian means because they've completely been raised in systems that very systematically only create space for straight people and cis people, you know? the I can only tell you what I'm doing, and this is also like, you know, it's a slow journey. I'm learning to see my parents as people and realizing that I have to build an identity that is so strong and so self-assured that no matter what someone else thinks of me, my identity cannot be erased. And so, therefore, I don't have to depend on coming out to anyone. Parents are really, really, really tricky. Family is extremely tricky and very often, you know, um, dangerous as well for people to navigate who are queer. And I think you know your parents the best. Think of ways in which it makes sense, in which you can live your life in ways that are authentic. And also honor that, you know, if your parents don't get it, it, there's a good chance that they might never get it. And you might have to live with that reality. And there's no easy way to answer that. There's no also right answer for this question. I hope their answers kind of resonate with you. And I hope that, you know, if you are listening to this, that, you know, you feel that, you know, you feel, I don't know, the strength to kind of continue on with where you are now. I think knowing that, you're not alone is so Mm. important. I think a huge part of my own personal journey was feeling like I was alone until I realized that I don't have to necessarily find other people like me. The beauty of queerness is that our queerness defines us so uniquely from each other that you don't have to be the same exact person. We can never be the same exact person. You know, even if you're attracted to the same person, even if you attract the same person, we still, I think the beauty of us and our humanity is that we can grow in such myriad and mystical ways, you know? Mm-hmm. Explore that. Be your be your be your own puzzle. Last question. Right. What is one message you would like to leave with the people? Well, I mean listen to this podcast. Like I've, that's all <laughs> I've been doing. I mean just giving advice. Um, <laughs> my gosh. Give yourself permission. God damn it. Just give yourself permission. Care for yourself, love yourself, really center your liberation in every single thing that you do. It's not being selfish. It is absolutely doing all the work that possibly your parents did not have the opportunity to do. So you got this. You got this. 
<laughs> I said that Be the auntie the you want to see in the world. <laughs> God. Oh. Thank you so much for having Thank me. Thank you for being here. This is such a beautiful episode. I'm literally tearing up. Can you see? Like I'm actually tearing up. <laughs> I love it. Thank yeah, you. I'm very excited to listen to this again and again while at it. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for sharing so openly and authentically. And yeah, I think Shai and I both can concur that we have learned a lot mm. today. Thank yeah. you. And likewise, it's been an honor and I'm, and I'm excited for the work that the both of you are putting together. Both through this podcast, but also in your own lives. And I think it's exciting for us to be walking different paths, but in the same direction. Yeah, excited too. Um, before we finish off today, where can um, where can folk find you? Yeah, absolutely. So if you looked up Navi Karan, which is N double A V I K A R A N, on any goddamn platform, it'll lead you to One me. One of kind. And such fun platforms include Spotify, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, or if you'd like to also support my work, you can look me up on coffee.com forward slash Navi Karan, which is K, well, www.kofi.com forward slash Navi Karan. And yeah, so please give me your money. <laughs> she likes money. Pay him. Or your likes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Don't forget to follow us uh, at Auntie Please on Instagram. Shaya is at Shaya5. I am at Natasha J. Lama. And we will see you. Next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.